This is Tony Thomason. Today is Wednesday, December 7, 2016, and today I'm interviewing for the first time retired architect George Vialva. This interview is taking place at the Austin History Center at 810 Guadalupe Street in Austin, Texas. This interview is being done for the Austin History Center Architectural Archives and it's one of a series of interviews with and about Austin Travis County architects. Hello, George. Hi, how are you doing, Tony? Good. Let's start today by you telling me your full name and when and where you were born. I'm George Villalba. I was born in 1935 in El Paso, Texas. And you grew up in El Paso? Mm-hmm. All the way through high school. Mm-hmm. And then I went into military service. And then I came to Austin in 1960 to study architecture. And how long were you in the military? Four, four years. Four years. You traveled? I was stationed in California, and then I was stationed in Japan, and I wound up in Okinawa. Wow. Yeah. But I did travel during that course. I went traveling to the Philippines. I traveled um, in, Indo, in uh, Indonesia, and I went several times to India. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was very good. When did you know you might want to be an architect? I was in junior high, and my, my father had a friend who was a civil engineer, and one day we, we went with the engineer to, to measure a building that my father owned, and when I saw what he was doing, mm -hmm. I said, that's what I want to do. And then did you take classes related well, to I was, that? Well, I was very good in drawing, so I knew mm -hmm. that the drawing and the... And I had taken uh, drafting, I you know, mechanical drawing. Mm -hmm. And I was very good at that. So I, I knew I was going to be okay. But, but my mother wanted me to be a pharmacist. She was adamant that I was going to be a pharmacist. And why did she want you to be a pharmacist? Did she know I don't know. She, that was just a preconception she had. Mm -hmm. She thought that that was a good career. And I told her, no, Mom, I'm very bad in chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to work. <laughs> and so um, she said, well, okay. But mom was a, of my parents, she was a multi-influential. Mm -hmm. She was a very liberal-minded woman. She wasn't very educated, but she was very liberal. And, um, and when I was very young, I was in grade school, she bought me encyclopedia. She bought me the uh, yeah. yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah, just you know, she, she bought me the uh, the Arturian legends. So by the time I went to junior high, I knew all about King Arthur and and the Arturian legends. I knew about Aesop fables, um, the importance of that. I, I, I learned to read pretty good, but so so she she knew where I was going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which high school did you go to in El Paso? Austin High School. And Austin High School is an all-white school, and we lived right on the boundary line. So 
So mom said, you can go to Jefferson or you can go to Austin. And Jefferson was all Hispanic and Austin was all white. And then I said, what do you think I ought to do, mom? She said, you ought to go to the white school because you're going to go to college. And so there was no buses, so I had to walk. There were three of us that walked like, I don't know, three or four miles to high to the school mm -hmm. every day. But that was, that was good because we were, out of a thousand students at Austin, there was only like a hundred of us. Hispanics? Yeah, hundred Hispanics. Was it hard or? Yeah, because of the teachers. The teachers were still very racial. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't give us recognition. But in all fairness, there was one teacher, Mr. Kelso, that said to me, he said, look, don't worry about the other teachers, George. You're going to be OK. You just mm -hmm. keep doing your work and just move on. So Mr. Kelso was the first big influence in my life. I thought of my parents. Tony, I had five teachers that I can name. They were, they were my guardian angels. So all the way through grade school to university. And they're the one that would take me outside and say, look, stop doing that. <laughs> this, is what you got. this is what you gotta do. And they were all white females, except for, except for Mr. Kelso. At that time, there were no Hispanic teachers. Mm -hmm. So those teachers were very, very important. Did uh, they keep up with you and you kept up with them over? But the last was Mrs. Amos at the University of Texas. She was my speech teacher. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she, I would meet with her after I graduated. I would meet with her and uh, we would have lunch until she passed away. Yeah, she, she was really remarkable. She would take me into a studio at the University of Texas and, she, and we would go into an empty auditorium and she would sit at the very back and she would put me up on the stage with a toothpick between my teeth and she would have me read out loud and then she would say, I, I can't hear you, George. You're not articulating, you know. Wow. Yeah, and it was really hard. And, uh, and oh, what would, a good skill to have. Hmm? What a good skill to have for the future. Well, yeah, it was, it was incredible. I never had a teacher like that. She also said then something to, that, to me that to this day I, I repeat it. One day in a, in a speech that I made, she gave me a critique and she said, she made several comments and then I said, you know, Ms. Amos, I'm, I'm real nervous about my, uh, my accent, because sometimes my accent would come out. She said, don't worry about your damn accent, worry about your vocabulary. <laughs> yeah. That was good advice. Yeah. yeah, after that it was just like another universe. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't conscious of the accent anymore. I just went on and good. it made a big difference. Yeah, Mrs. Amos was a, she was a sweetheart. So, did you know you would be going into the military? Was that part of your plan? Yeah, I, I actually had no choice. Very early on, my dad said to me, he said, look, George, we don't have money to send you to college, so if you want to go to college, you're on your own. And I said, yes, sir. So I knew that the only way to go mm -hmm. to college was to go serve in the Army. So I did. They paid for it. I would get, 
$112 a month. But at that time, my tuition with a student card uh, to all the football games and everything was $76. Wow. A semester. <laughs> can, can you believe that? That's incredible. Mm -hmm. So you arrived at UT, what year was that? 1960. Oh. Yeah, and, um, in September. But I was already an older student. I was mm -hmm. like 28. Had seen the world. No, I wasn't 28. No, I take it back. I was like 26. But because uh, I had been in engineering, and then mm -hmm. I did all the in the elective courses before transferring to architecture. Because I went to UTEP in El Paso. Oh, okay. So I, I did two years of engineering, took all the math and the chemistry mm -hmm. and got all that out of the way. So when I got to UT, I was ready to do the- Start design and drawing. The architectural, yeah. Did you have any instructors or professors at UT that were particularly important to you and supportive? Richard Twalo. He was, he was one of the garden angels. Very early on, he and I connected. And uh, Robert Mather was okay, but he was kind of just standoffish, mm -hmm. you know. And he wasn't, a, and he wasn't around that long. Because he passed away, I, I think, in my second year of school. Oh, okay. But uh, Swallow kept up with me all the way through. The other professors I found to be very standoffish and indifferent. And some of them were outright racist, like Kermacy and Taminja, Reznor. They were racist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there weren't many Hispanics. Out of 300 students in the, in the School of Architecture, there was only 30 of us. No women. One woman, one white woman, Pina Endorf. I wonder what happened to her. She was very good. She was very good. Everybody else was white males. So how, how many years did it take you to finish? Five. You went another five. And were you working? Yeah, and I was were? working. Not only that, I made a mistake of getting married. <laughs> Big mistake. Big mistake. And Swallow told me, he said, don't do that, George. You know, that's a mistake. Well, tell me about the working part. Who did you work for while you were in school? When I was in El Paso, I went to an architect, Dixon M. Skidmore, and I asked him for a job. And he said, you have any experience? I said, no. I said, but I'm a very good artist. He was a residential designer. He said, okay, I said, I won't pay you much. I'll pay you a dollar an hour, but I'll teach you. I said, yes, sir. And I would, I would come in after hours at night and work for free. So I would, so I would learn the process. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he and I became real good friends. He wasn't a very good architect, design-wise, but he's very, Consistent. He's very professional, and he was a. He said, "Look, as an architect, this is what you have to do." And he said, "You're going to be in a different situation he said, because there are no Hispanic architects right now, so you're going to be one of the first ones, and nobody's going to take you seriously because you're Hispanic." 
And so I said, what would I do? And I said, well, you just have to do your homework. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> when I, he gave me a recommendation, and when I came to Austin with that letter of recommendation, I went straight to Lundgren Maurer. Because oh, okay. he had worked for them. Mm-hmm. And, he, and Mr. Skidmore said, look, this is a good man hiring. And, uh, and Mr. Lundgren, Mr. Lundgren hired me. A month later, um, did you ever know Mr. Maurer? No, I knew Mr. Lundgren, but not Mr. Maurer. Mr. Maurer was volatile. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. And what are you showing me here? One day, I had been there a month, and Tom Lasseter, who was the office manager, came in. In the in the drafting room, there were about ten of us. And I and I came and he came in. He said, "I need a perspective by tomorrow morning. Who can do a perspective?" And somebody said, "George. George is real good at that." And so, I. I Tom didn't know me real well, and, and Tom was a racist. He was, he was a, wow, he was bad. And so anyway, Tom said, here's what Mr. Morrow wants for tomorrow morning. He's got to leave at 10 o'clock, he's got to have this drawing ready by 10 o'clock in the morning. And I said, what are we doing? He said, we're doing a, a, a dentist's office in, um, in Florida, Palm Springs, Florida. And he gave me the information. And this is a drawing I did. I see. Yeah. Yeah. And this was a de- this is the design that they were they, they were doing. Interesting thing, Tony, about Lundgren and Maurer. Lundgren and Maurer were not designers, but they were very good businessmen, and they mm-hmm. they, they did a lot of hotels. Holiday inns. Holiday inns. Yes. They did a lot of holiday inns. Their designer was Gene Mobley. Gene Mobley. I don't think was registered, but he was a brilliant designer. When I got there, Gene was gone. I never met Gene Mobley. Mm-hmm. I wish I had because he was really very good, and he was he was an excellent draftsman, and his renderings were really outstanding. And Leonard and Maurer always took credit for the designs that Gene Mobley did. Gene Mobley never got any credit. I think that was a disservice. This kind of design was was put in place at Lunger and Meyer by Gene Mobley. Mm-hmm. And in Florida, Mr. Meyer was in, in love with this Polynesian motif. Mm-hmm. When I did this drawing, the next morning, Meyer came in and he said, who did this fucking drawing? And I said, I did. And he said, come on, I'll see you. And he took me into his office and he said, how much will we paying you? And I said, $1.50. He said, now you're making two seventy-five. And I said, well, thank you very much. He said, from now on, he said, you're my designer. He said, this is really good. I've been looking for you. And so I became a designer. Wow. Yeah, out of this drawing. This drawing took me into another level, and it doubled my salary. It is a beautiful drawing. Yeah, well, it's a little, little bit of whack, but, it's, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, it worked. When I graduated from, from school, I worked for Lunger and March all the way through oh, okay. when I was going to school. The first project that I did as a designer for Lunger and Maurer when I got out of school was Reynolds Penland on the drag. Oh, yeah. This building here. This building here, they didn't put the screens like I want them to. And I think it was a mistake because the, hot, the sun in the morning was coming this way, and that was meant to be a, 
a protector against the clothing. Mm -hmm. But this design became a, a prototype for several copycats in Austin. They started repeating. Other people? Other people, yeah. The same motifs, the little segmented arch, the little fluted mm -hmm. columns, the deep setbacks, but without the screens. The wood screens were out of wood. But this drawing sold that project. And so this drawing was, was really important. So this is so detailed. Uh, yeah. Is this the original scale that you did it? No, I would do it in a minute. Much uh, larger? Yeah, 18 by 24. But yeah, I was real good at this kind of cross-hatching. Mm -hmm. It's amazing because today my handwriting is real shaky. And I couldn't... <laughs> you wouldn't be able it's to It's unimaginable that I, could, that I did all this stuff, you know. Then this little, this figure here became my motif. I, she, she was in all my drawings. Oh, okay. Yeah, she became the same. She became, these were all holiday here. This is a hotel that we did that I designed in, for New York City. It was never built, but I thought it was really cool. There's a, there she is right there. There she is in New York. New York. This and one here she is. There she is. This was built in, uh, in, in Hollywood, in Westwood, California, and that was built as a Holiday Inn. Uh, this is in Tampa, Florida, the prototype of the one we did. Mm -hmm. When we did the one here on Holiday Inn on Town Lake, one day Tom called me at 4 o'clock in the morning and said, George, I need you in the office at 6 o'clock. He said, we got to work on a design. Mr. Kimball is coming in from Memphis. Kimball was the owner of Holiday Inns. And he said, he and Mr. Maurer are going to tour Austin looking for a site for a Holiday Inn. By the time they leave at 6 o'clock, we need to have a design ready for them. And so Tom and I and another guy, I forget who it was, we worked on this concept of a round holiday inn mm -hmm. using slip forming and no air conditioning with only window units. We built a holiday inn for $10 a foot, Tony. Wow, what year? That was the one here in Austin? This is a 1960s eight or nine, something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, $10 a foot. It's incredible. If people don't believe me, I said, it didn't include all this. It didn't include the balconies and all this stuff. This, this was a later version, but this run holiday inn took off everywhere. In yeah, Mexico you and- You know, we have the Lundgren and Mauer collection downstairs. Really? All the drawings for the holiday inns. I did this design for Mr. Maurer. This is in Kansas City, it was a shopping center with a holiday end, but it was a, in a cruciform mm -hmm. technique. But I thought this drawing was very good because it had real good urban space. And you know, this guy here was a banker and he didn't like it. And he, he, canc he canceled the financing. Oh. Yeah, I thought it was pretty, I thought it was real good. This was an existing building. Mm -hmm. But this was a design that I had come up with and, and this was a banker and this was already in place. But the plaza and all this stuff was my idea. And, very and urban, very forward I thought thinking. it was, because you look, this is 67. I know. So, uh, this was the way by the university. On uh, Speedway was right here, and this is, uh, what is it, uh, 19th Street, MLK? I'm trying to get a picture of where that is. It used to be a Safeway right here. This is a creek. There, oh. was, a, there was a Safeway right here. Okay. And we, this, these were apartments. And I designed those for him, and um, he wasn't built. 
But at I thought Waller it was, Creek. At Waller Creek. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was pretty nice. This is the original version of the YMCA here in Austin. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The one on Town Lake. Yeah. But um, Jan Grierson did the design. Do you remember Jan Grierson? I do. Yeah. yeah. So did he do it for? For Lager and Mauer. He was working, yeah. he was working there. This is San Antonio, right across from uh, the Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. Which is this is '67. Yeah. And I thought this is a pretty handsome drawing, because it was stable. You know, it, everything was, everything was steady. Some, sometimes or not. This this how the end was, was controlled by the mafia. This is in Toledo, Ohio. And they control all the in and outs to the to the construction site. Oh, okay. And so they kind of controlled, they owned the damn thing. This is in Mexico City. That's beautiful on the water. Yeah. This this, this is a real interesting, uh, you know, this is, the, this is the same one. This is the, this is a famous club called La Cutiqui. This is the first holiday inn that we did in Mexico City, in Acapulco. This is a, this was taken from the, from the water. Mm -hmm. This is taken from there. Mauer always insisted that I have an airplane. <laughs> so how was I having to put these airplanes in there? So how long would it take you to do a drawing like this? If I was hot, it would take me four days. If I wasn't real, real good, sometimes I wasn't really good, it would take me a week. But, but most of the time you had the design. Yeah, but it was very it was very intense doing these drawings, mm -hmm. and sometimes you can you can see. I mean, to to do this kind of stuff, you gotta be an idiot savant. <laughs> you, you gotta be really completely focused. Focused, yeah. You gotta be upset. This right here, next to this side here, was a Club de Pesca, a real famous uh, nightclub in Acapulco. And one day, Gene White, the secretary, said, George, there's a, um, a call from Mexico City. They don't speak English. Can you take the call? So I took, it, took the call, and he said, this is Dr. Gonzalez. I'm calling from Acapulco. Who am I speaking to? And I said, I'm the architect Villalba. And, you know, and he said, well, look, he said, I understand you guys are building a holiday inn and over there in Acapulco. And I said, yes, sir, we are. He said, we own a lot next to the Club de Pesca, which is right here, which was right over here. He said, my brother is the mayor of, of Acapulco, but his term is up at the end of the year. He said, we're interested in making a deal with Holiday Inn where we would donate the land and have part ownership. Would you be interested? And I said, I'll have to check with my bosses. So we got in conference and Holiday Inn, yeah, they agreed and over. The man came to Austin several times. I would always meet him at the airport. He was a little bit older than I was, but he was very, very much an architect, you know? Mm -hmm. Well-trained and new stuff. And, and so we did the design and the drawings were being done by a Mexican firm in Mexico City. And they were about halfway through. And one day Gene White said to me, he said, George, there's, a, there's an attorney from Mexico City calling. You want to take the call? And I said, okay. And he said, look, I understand you guys are getting ready to build a hotel and such and such. I said, yes, sir. 
He said, well, the owner of the land is real interested in knowing what you're going to do. And I said, well, the owners are Mr. Is Mr. Gonzalez and the mayor. He said, that is not true. They don't own the land. It was a fraud. Mm, wow. Yeah. Close call. And so they stopped everything. And the, the lady refused to have any deals or anything. The real owner of the land? It was a fraud. Land. Was that the last hotel there yeah. in Mexico? As far as I know. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Holiday Inn on Town Lake. Yeah, that looks familiar. This drawing went, came out in the Wall Street Journal. And that, that gave me a national reputation as, a draw, as, oh. a, as a, an artist. And what does it say there? I can't read it. Looks like 66. Six? Yes, 1966. Because of this drawing, the Dallas AIA invited me to go judge their rendering competition. Oh, Yeah, nice. a couple of years later. That would have been fun. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And, you know, they, I went down there and, and did the, the, the judging. So I was a judge for them. But back then I was obsessed with this dark image. You know, so mm -hmm. it, it, what it was, it would print real well. So in the newspaper, in the magazine, it would just pow. It would pop. And so this drawing here was very seminal. But they were always done in black and white. Always in black and white, yeah. This is a fraternity house I did for Mr. Maurer in, in uh, San Marcos. You remember Milton McMurray? I don't think so. He's, he's an architect. He graduated a little bit after I did. Milton was working for longer in Maurer and, and uh, one day Mr. Maurer came in and he said, who did this goddamn design? It was some other design and uh, I don't know, somebody had done it. And, and he said, um, he said, George, why don't you take this design and you know, doctor it up? I want, I want, I want to have. Did so, he give you any instruction on what? Well, I knew what he liked. Oh, okay. And so this is what I came up with. It's real romantic, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of goofy, but he loved it. He went bananas. He thought it was the greatest thing, and uh, and so it's in my portfolio. I think, I don't know, what this is El Paso, but it, it wasn't built, not like this, it came out mm -hmm. different, and this is El Paso. This is a Driscoll Hotel here in Austin, when I was working for Brooks by Graber and White. David Graber called me and he said, George, you want to come work for me? And it was right after the My Lai accident, uh, incident in, in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Mr. Maurer was, and Tom Laster were very, very conservative, and they were always putting up political propaganda in the drafting room, and I would always get upset. So when the Mili came out and, and the Kent State Massacre came out and that iconic photograph in Life magazine, I took that photograph and I made it into a big poster, and I put, I think I put uh, Silent Majority Strikes again, and I put it up in the drafting room. Because I had a, I was a designer, so I, I had an office by myself, on my own. <clears throat> at at, uh, at nine o'clock, Tom Laster came in. Said he started to take the, the sign down, and the lead draftsman said, "You better not do that, because that's George's. You touch that, George will kick the shit out of you. George is mean. He he he's not gonna. He's done." And he said, "Well, you tell George to come and see me." 
And so the guy came in and, t- and told me what had happened. I t- so I went into Tom. I said, Tom, you touch that drawing. I said, you're going to go down. He said, well, I don't know who's going to take it down. Mr. Morrow will take it down. I said, I'll take him down too. So anyway, Mr. Morrow went and took the sign down. And so then Gene White called me and said, Mr. Morrow wants to see you. So I went into his office and he said, God damn it, George, what are you doing? You know, you're creating all this. I said, look, you guys put up your propaganda. Why shouldn't I? I said, where's my sign? I want my sign back. And so it was in the theater in the trash because I picked it up. I said, I'm going to put it up in my office. I said, Ma, are you coming to my office? I said, I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> he said, you won't dare. I said, yeah. He said, I'm bigger than you. I said, yeah. I said, but you can't fight. I've seen you fight. You can't fight. I said, you're, you're scared of fighting. I said, I'm not. And I said, you come in my office? I said, you're not going to fight. So he said, so he never did. But he said, you better stop that, George. So a week later. You got the call from Graber, huh? Graber called me. and He found out that I was having trouble over there. He said, why don't you come and work for me, George? I'm not going to give you that kind of grief. I knew it was time to go. So I went and told Maurer. Maurer started crying. He said, you can't leave me, George. You're my goddamn designer. I said, Mara, I said, it's time for me to go. So you know, how long had you been there? Since I'd been in school, five, six years. So I went to work for, for, for Graber, and then he put me to work with uh, Mr. Uh, Brooks, and he, he owned part of, he, he owned the Driscoll along with Brian of Air, uh, Airlines. And so we, we did these drawings. So these were the original, drawings to how we were going to remodel it. Mm-hmm. So um, I thought they were nice drawings. Yeah. I did this for somebody. This is downtown. It never went up. I think this is uh, the bank building, mm-hmm. City National. Oscar, I mean, uh, Ernesto Liebert designed this building. You remember Ernesto? I do. Okay. He became a chief designer for somebody in Dallas. One of the architects, I forget their name, they asked me to do this rendering. It's a goofy building, but it's a real nice drawing. It is. Yeah, the the drawing has a sparkle to it. It, This is Houston Tillerson. I did this drawing for Brooks by and White. I mean, the design. And I won an award for this design, and I won an award for this drawing. So tell me what that is. I recognize the tower. This is the chapel, and this is classrooms. Oh, okay. And this is a campanile. Someday I'll tell the story about how we got that. Here's some drawings of, the, of Houston Tillerson. These are sketches in the beginning in pencil. But, um, at first they didn't like the design because it was too brutal. Mm-hmm. And then I'll tell you a story about this campanile. This is a drawing of Paul Rudolph's Art and Architecture Building in Yale, which I did. And that's it. So okay. I thought those drawings give a, it'll give you an example, uh, give an idea of how my training and my my process through into the architectural community mm-hmm. came about. So you worked for Brooks Bar, Graber, and White for how long? How long? I was with Brooks Bar, I think three years, and then I went on my own with uh, with Don Boynot. Don wasn't registered, 
and I was in the process of getting my registration, but we, we struck out. Because I had gotten uh, a commission from Crystal City. Oh. Yeah. And um, so the, on that basis, we got started. Then I got my registration. Don didn't get a registration until much later. But we didn't last very long. Don had a nervous breakdown. Oh, yeah. We went into an economic uh, recession. And he, he said, I can't take it, George, you know. We, we were living on nothing, on, on thin air, I guess. And he said, uh, let's declare bankruptcy. And I said, no. I said, I'll buy you out. And so I bought him out. But in the process, I had to bring in Juan, because I sold Juan half of the business in order to pay Don off. Tell me Don's last name again. B-O-I-T-N-O-T-T. Boynot or Boyno? B-O-I-T-N-O-I-T? I-T-T. Okay. Don was a spec writer, excellent draftsman, but he, he was not a designer. And he was a real, he didn't know how to get projects. One of the first projects, we got that I got. It was a, a paint a paint factory in addition to a paint factory. I lost it the first day because Don told the owner we couldn't do something, and the owner said, "I don't want to deal with that man, George." I said, "Look, I'll put him aside. You won't have anything." He said, "No, he's your partner. You can't you can't divorce him." I said, "I don't want to deal with him." So I said, "Okay." So Don, Don didn't have that kind of yeah. finesse with clients. Well, Juan, did you know Juan from school? From school. And um, I told Juan, I said, Juan, I said, you and I are going to be partners. I said, but you and I are going to be partners, and we won't bring any relatives into the business. We're not going to bring any close friends into the business. And, uh, and when we went into the, into the partnership, Tom Hatch was working for me, and Tom was a excellent employee. He's a good designer mm -hmm. and and everything. And 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 Tom was real hurt because I had given Juan the the option, and then it never occurred that that Tom might be able to buy into the business. And because he was younger, right? He was younger. And so he left and went to work for Brooks Barger and White. Oh. So I lost Tom. <clears throat> but then, after two years, Juan talked me into bringing in Roger. And I said, no, but I did anyway, because I trusted Juan. Three years later, they, they pulled the rug under me, mm -hmm. took the business away from me. So, you know, in, in that sense, I was, I was not a very good I was too trusting, you know. I wasn't, I wasn't a Donald Trump <laughs> by any stretch. But well, then did, I, did you have a, a preference for? And you may not have had a chance to discover this, but the business side, the design side, or did you well, like it all together? I was a good draftsman, but I I knew that I wasn't meant to be a draftsman. And. 
I knew I was going to be a designer because that's what I wanted to do. But then when I went into business, I knew that I had to be a PR person as well because otherwise I couldn't get any jobs. But then I ran into discrimination and I, we, couldn't, we couldn't get credit. And we couldn't get consideration on any jobs, either from the city of Austin or from UT or from the state or from the feds. Uh, did all the things that you had to do, like go through uh, um, registration for the Small Business Administration, mm -hmm. the Section 88 and all that stuff, you know, 88 certification, I did all that, spent hours and hours going to seminars and being briefed and all that. Nada. We couldn't get jobs anywhere. In Austin. In Austin. What about the Valley? Were you successful in the Valley? Yeah, but we were outsiders. The Valley was very political. The thing was, because we were among the first Hispanic architects in the whole state, there had been some others like uh, Valdez out of San Antonio and uh, Aguirre out of Dallas. They were before me. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> they were very successful. But other than that, there was nobody. I became a registered lobbyist and I was going through, through, the, UT, I mean, through the legislature. And one day, one of the legislators, uh, representative, took me aside. He said, "Look, George, you're a nice guy." I said, "But, but you're dumb." He said, "I know what you're trying to do." He said, "But, he said, in the first place, you're not registered. You got to register as a lobbyist. Otherwise, we can't talk to you." I said, "Okay, I'll go register." So I did. And then he said, "Yeah, I said, but you ain't got any money, George. You don't have any muscle. You don't have any political muscle. You don't have any money." I said, "What are you gonna do?" I said, what am I supposed to do? You know, I thought it was supposed to be fair. He said, no, there's nothing fair about this. This is cutthroat. He said, look, tell you what, go see this guy. He's the chairman of the Hispanic Caucus. He'll tell you what to do. So he was this lawyer from the Valley, young, fat guy. He said, I'll tell you what to do. And he wrote down a piece of paper. It was right before Christmas. And he said, this is what I want you to do. He was telling me to get him a room at the Cambridge Towers, get him three cases of whiskey, get him three call girls. <laughs> and I said, what? And you would get, who knows what? <laughs> I said, Representative, this is like $5,000. I said, what the, what the hell are you here for? What do you expect? You know, you expect something for nothing? Get out of here. So, so I went back to Truan and I said, Hey, and he said, he laughed, he said, I'll tell you what, George, he said, you're not going to get anything as an individual. You got you to gotta come up with a group. I said, okay. So I came back and I formed the Texas Society of Hispanic Architects. It was non-existent. <laughs> I called 12 guys that I knew across Texas and I said, look, will you sign this piece of paper? We're going to belong to a mythical institution. We're going to call it, and they said, "Yeah, yeah." And so, and so, I had twelve names. One guy from San Antonio, what's his name? He was a graduate of Harvard. I had met him because I invited him to lecture in one of my classes. I forget his name. I think his name was Ortiz. I said, "I said, Ortiz, will you sign this paper? You know, join this organization?" He said, "No." 
He said, people don't come to me because my name is Ortiz. People come to me because I went to Harvard. <laughs> oh, oh, I said, oh, man, get away. So I went back to Toronto and said, hey, I'm the president of that pit. And he, he said, really? I said, yeah, there it is. You know, we got a charter and we got all this. And he said, yeah, okay. He took me to introduce me to the commissioner of, of uh, mental health and mental retardation. And the commissioner was Commissioner Graven. He was a new commissioner in Texas. And Truan was on his committee, on the, on the health committee, oh. so he controlled his budget. Mm -hmm. Truan said, help this guy, you know. He need, he's a good architect, help him. The commissioner took me to Phil Bible. Remember Phil Bible? Phil Bible was an asshole. <laughs> He wouldn't give me a job. So I went to a, another representative, and then along with Truan and Representative, uh, uh, I forget her name. So Phil Bible was the facilities guy for that agency for the state. They told me, so you better give this guy a job, otherwise we're going to go into your budget. So Phil said to me, I don't know what to do, but I've been instructed to give you a goddamn job. He said, but I tell you what, I'm gonna, you, I'm gonna select the consultants. And I said, I don't know about that. I said, so I accepted the mechanical guy and the Beagle. Remember Mr. Beagle? Oh. The guy? What did he do? He was a mechanical engineer. Oh, okay. He wanted this outrageous fee and I said, you crazy. I said, I'm not gonna pay you your outrageous fee. He said, well, you got to do it, because that's what Phil said you had to do it. I told Phil, I said, you want that guy, you pay him, because I'm not going to pay him. And so, so we, we cut it down, but mm -hmm. I got B. Siegel. Oh, he was just absolutely a big, racist pig. So we got, I, that was the only job I ever got from, from the state of Texas. Wow. So there was no affirmative action. Without affirmative action, we couldn't get anything. And it wasn't so much the upper tier of the, of the structure, it was the middle tier. Middle management was all white, all white boys, and mm -hmm. they would not let you in. UT, UT gave me one little chicken shed job in Smithville for a little lab. They didn't pay for the gas for me to get out there, but I took it because I knew I had to be part of that. Is that part of the Buescher? That yeah, and yeah. They were doing part. research on mm -hmm. eggs. Yeah, the and then I formed another organization to fight the discrimination, and it was called the Austin Alliance. The Austin Alliance was a a group of Hispanic architects and engineers, and there was about twenty of us, and included all the architects and all the engineers Hispanic. But then I said, I told the group we got to bring in the white women. They said, no, no, we got to keep it Hispanic. I said, no, no, I said, we got to bring in the white women. I said, because I'll put the, fright, the white women in front and they will not shoot to their women and the women will take <laughs> all the bullets. <laughs> so I brought, I brought in Ruth Parshall. <laughs> Ruth Parshall was a real tiger, you know? Mm -hmm. She's a tiger. And so she became part of that group. And, and the, the idea was to get jobs from the city, jobs from the state. Ruth and I went up and down for two or three years. 
the white women got jobs, but we didn't. Oh, that's ah, it was, it was tough, you know? It was, know. The whole idea of getting jobs, city of Austin got better and better. Mm -hmm. the, and I got some jobs from the county, so did Ruth. Because um, I had a real good, strong connection with the county commissioners. But then we lost that commissioner, and the other commissioners didn't like me, so they wouldn't give me anything. So politically, it was a real struggle. Yeah. You know? Oh, it was a real struggle. Well, you mentioned something about your classes at UT. Let's yeah. talk about that. It was interesting. We couldn't get credit in Austin from the banks. And so a group of us businessmen got together and said, we got to form an Hispanic, an Hispanic Chamber of Commerce because the Austin Chamber wouldn't give us any support. They, mm -hmm. they didn't want to deal with us. So we formed, I was one of the eight people that formed the Austin Hispanic Chamber. I was the second chairman. In my, in my term, there was a young lawyer, his name was Gabriel Gutierrez, and he said, George, I got an idea. He said, let's sue the banks. I said, what banks? He said, the five major banks in Austin. Let's sue them in federal court. I said, what, what is your, your legal strategy? He said, look, under the CIA, under the Community Reinvestment Fund, Reinvestment Act, the, any bank that's receiving federal funds, federal deposits, has to have an affirmative action program in place. Wow. He said, let's go request for those plans. So we went to the six banks. Nobody had a plan. So I told the banks, I'm going to sue you. They said, you, you don't dare. City National called Gus Garcia, who I think at that time was school board or councilman. And he said, who the hell are these guys, you know, trying to sue us? Gus said, look, they're businessmen. They, just, they want some credit from you. You guys won't give them any credit. And he said, they offered Gus Garcia $10,000 to buy us off. And Gus said, look, these guys are not going to go for $10,000. He said, besides, you got to deal with Villalba. He's not going to buy none of that. So we sued the banks. And we filed a letter to the Treasury Department. Treasury Department sent back a letter saying, we refuse your request because of the expense to process, or that would be prohibitive. So we said, what is the expense? It was $13. He said, okay, we're going to sue. At that time, Tony, I had met a, an attorney from, that was on, on, uh, on the state of Texas, and his name was, um, I don't remember his name now, but he, when Governor Brown got elected governor in, in California, he, he elected this guy to run his, uh, his Department of Education in California. When he was in California, he sued Bank of America. And I heard that he was in Austin for a conference, so Mario Obledo, his name was Mario Obledo. And I went to Mario, I said, Mario, remember me? He said, yeah. I said, I need your help, Mario. He said, I'm trying to sue the bank in Austin like you sued, you know, mm -hmm. Bank of America in California. Can you give me some advice? He said, I'll be glad to. He said, this is what you got to do, George. And he said, bam, 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 bam. That, that's the way it went. When I went back to the banks, pow, they couldn't get out of it. We got the first bankers, 
we got we were the, we got lines of credit, mm -hmm. and we were able to get this affirmative act. So that was a big deal that to other architects. Big. What wow. year approximately was that? Seventy-two, seventy-three. I just started. I was dying. I, I, I was just gasping for air. And then, and then I had a wife that was going nuts because she wanted me to go back to Brooksburger and Whiting for a steady salary, you know, and instead mm -hmm. of being out on the on and a limb. But then, <clears throat> because of that, one day I get a call from. Memo Torres, who was a professor at UT. You remember Memo? I know the name. Okay. I didn't know. Memo him. was weird. But I, he was a good friend of mine. Memo called me and said, George, I need your help. He knew I was chairman of the Hispanic Chamber. He said, I need the chamber to help me. He said, what's, what's up? He said, I've just been fired. I said, what do you mean you've been fired? He said, yeah. Dean Burnett came into my, into my classroom and said, I want you to pack your gear and leave. And I said, Wow, what was the what was the deal? He said, I don't know. And so I called Swallow and I said, Hey, what's going on? You know, we, we, you can't do this. He said, George, he's a dean. He can do whatever he wants to. Mm -hmm. I knew that HEW and HUD were on campus, looking at UT's affirmative action. So I called Pickle's office, and I knew the aide real well, Reg Todd. And, I, and Reg was here in Austin, Pickle was in Washington, and I told Reg, I said, Reg, this is what's going on. I said, they fired one of the few professors, and the only architectural professor in UT, he was fired with no cause. He said, I'm gonna file a letter charging discrimination with HUD if I don't get some response from your office. And so, two hours later, Mr. Pickle calls me and he said, George, don't do anything. Just hold on. He said, I'm going to do some calling. He said, somebody will be calling you from UT. The next day, Mr. Burke, who was a vice chancellor, called me up. He said, Mr. Rialva, I said, I want to see you. So I went down there and he said, look, what's going on? I told him. He said, we'll get your boy back in there. He said, but don't fire any letters. Be, you know, be. So I got Memo back in there. And so Dean Burnett had to back off. A month later, Tony, I'm having lunch at the Nighthawk down there on the drag, and I go in, and there's Swallow with some other faculty members, and I went over there to say hi, and, and Mr. Swallow said to me, he said, we heard what you did with Memo, George. And I said, well, I hope you don't mind. I said, but you know, self-preservation. He said, yeah, I said, but he fucked it up. I said, what do you mean? He said, two days ago, we were here having lunch, and Memo comes here, and we were having lunch with the dean, and he starts telling the dean off and calling him all these kind of bad names, and in front of everybody, he just went nuts. He said, George, that, you can't do that. Well, after all that, he did himself in. Yeah, and I called him, I said, Memo, what's wrong with you? We go through all this trouble, and then you mess it up. So anyway. Memo leaves. He, he takes the jobs with Michigan State. The students call me up and he says, Mr. Yava, we want you to come and take Memo's place because we need somebody up here. And so I said, okay, I'll go down there. So I went and interviewed with Burnett. Burnett didn't like me. He was a strange little guy from Philadelphia. I remember. I was in school. Well, you were. Mm -hmm. Well, 
we didn't like each other. And he said, man, I don't need you, you know, I don't need, I said, look, you're gonna have H-E-W on your ass if you don't take me. He went, well, I can't afford what you want, you know, and, and he wouldn't pay my salary. And it went a whole lot, it was like $5,000, $6,000 for a semester, it was nothing, you know. Mm -hmm. But then I get a call from the director of Hispanic studies at UT, who was a friend of mine, and he said, George, we heard you're having trouble with the dean. I said, how'd you hear that? He said, look, George, every, in this university, the small world. Yeah, everybody <laughs> knows everything. He said, look, George, we'll pay half your salary. We need you in there. You cannot walk away from this. I said, I'm walking away because they're not meeting my demands. He said, we'll pay your demands. He said, at that time, there were 1,200 faculty members at UT. There were only 16 Hispanic faculty members in the whole university. He said, we need you in there. You're the only one in architecture. So that's how I got into architecture. And it wasn't through affirmative action, it was through mm -hmm. somebody else paying my way. And so... And what did you teach? Design and drawing. For how long? How long were Six you? years. But then I found that the university was just as racist as anybody else. Oh, it was cutthroat. I, it was terrible. It really mm -hmm. was. I was very disappointed. I thought that in the university area, everybody was liberal, which was kind of naive. <laughs> well, I've heard that you were, speaking of liberal causes, I've heard you were involved in liberal activities when you were a student. Is that true? Probably, I don't, I don't I remember. Specifically, yeah, you know, you had to. There was a lot of movement. There was Mayo and there was Maso. But these were, some of it, like Mayo was real radical. But it was right after the, you know, well, yeah. I didn't get too involved because I was, I was working and, married. you know, and then later on <laughs> married. I didn't have time to do any, a lot of yeah. that stuff. Okay. And besides, when you were in school of art, you didn't have time to mess around. No, you didn't. And so the, the, the teaching was very good. Yeah, I could see. The teaching was very good. And, and I, I was a very popular teacher, but I wasn't an easy teacher. In the six years that I was there, I gave out five A's in six years. Tommy Kasuri got two of them. Tommy was good. In design? In drawing. And Robert uh, Schumacher? No. Steinbomber. Oh. And there was a smarty ass kid from Dallas. His name was Chuck White. He, he was good? He was very good, but I didn't like him. He was a frat boy. He was just real snarky, you know. He was just arrogant. And when I did his drawings, when I did his evaluation, he was within one-tenth of an A, so I gave him a B. I just out of meanness, you know. A year later, I was going through the files and I saw his file, and I opened it up and I realized how good it was. And I said, damn, I made a mistake. This kid was an A student. So I went to the dean, I said, dean, it was Dean Box, I said, dean, I made a mistake in a drawing, and when a student, can I change it? 
He said, yeah, just fill out this form. And he, so I changed it to an A. About two weeks later, I met Chuck in the hallway. Some of it never said anything. I wonder if he knew. It, I asked him. Oh. I said, did you get the notice? He said, yeah. Hmm. And I said, so? He said, so what? He walked away. Interesting. Yeah. But the committee said they would fire me if I didn't give out more AIDS. I said, you have to fire me because I'm not going to give out more AIDS. They said, look, in my profession, we don't give out AIDS. If you come into my profession and you expect an AIDS just for showing up, I said, you're mistaken. I said, if you want to train architects to be good architects, I said, look at the school of, uh, school of law. They don't give out AIDS. The highest grade, the highest grade over there is in 89. He said, and look, and that's a good, they have a very good accreditation. I said, I said, I'm real good in my, in, in my profession. I said, I wouldn't make an A in my course. I said, Jesus Christ wouldn't make an A in my course. He said, he'd get a B plus, but he wouldn't get more than that. But yet five people got A's. And they said, we want you to give out more. I said, no, I'm not going to give out any A's unless they earn them. I said, you can fire me, but you're not going to get me to do something I don't want. So they, they, but they knew they couldn't fire me because they knew my, the history that I had that mm -hmm. I would bring in the... So by the time you left there, there must have been more women professors and more minorities. Yeah, although Gerlinda was still there and... Uh, <clears throat> oh, you mean students, yeah, it changed completely. Mm -hmm. I had, I was a counselor for the Hispanic students both men anyway, because the women didn't like to go to Gerlinda, because they said that Gerlinda was too cold, and, too, and that she didn't, I don't know. So all the Hispanic it women- It was German. <laughs> yeah, well, the Hispanic women were, they were scared. You know, they were always, they were real, they were real courageous. I never had a woman quit on me in school, and I had a lot of young Hispanic men quit. Because it was too hard, or too hard. I remember one time. I guess once a woman's made that decision to go to architecture school, they're not. I think they were very courageous. I, I was just full of admiration for them, because they were, they were getting sexually harassed. I remember one one girl came to me and said, "Mr. Yo, I don't know what to do, but you know, there was a, a Slav a professor. His name was Ivan something." He said, he, 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 he comes over and he, he, he's always touching me and he's always, he wants me to go to the movies with him. And, he, and I, I said, what do you mean he's touching me? Yeah, he, he grabs my behind, he, he tries to grab my breast. He's always, and I, so I went to Swallow and I said, Swallow, I said, you know, Ivan is doing all this shit on the girls, you know. Swallow so said, well, you know. I said, and he said, don't, don't you better, you better not go, go do anything to him. I said, hey. I'm not going to promise you anything. So one day I met him in the hallway, and I punched him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I punched him right there. Pow! Okay. And I said, "You keep my stay away from my girls." But the, so the girls were getting harassed academically. Yeah. You know, all along. Hard times. But anyway, but so the I finally left teaching because I couldn't afford it, and the the business. Started growing, and I I just had to mm -hmm. concentrate on the business. Yeah. Um, let's talk about 
your sketching and your art in your life? The sketching is, it, in my time, was really important because that was before the computers, you know, mm -hmm. and people who couldn't sketch, couldn't communicate. The sketching was magical. If you showed a good sketch to a client, you had him. Mm -hmm. I mean, he would get married, or she would get married to that sketch and just fall in love with it. So there was a there was a danger that once they got married, you couldn't change it too much because that's true. They would lose the illusion. It said, "It said if you could sketch, especially if you sketch right there in front of them, it was like magic." I said, "So the sketching was real good." Part of the marketing. That's right. Juan couldn't sketch. Roger couldn't sketch. So they they couldn't market the same way I did. Mm -hmm. And so I I always thought that was really very very good. In the presentations that we did to the to the to the clients, the drawings were always pivotal. Now one was an excellent writer, much better writer than I was, so he could do a real good narrative. Roger was a good numbers man. Mm -hmm. Business. I know you paint. Yeah. When did you start? When did you begin painting? Seriously, I started painting around 67 or 68. I started taking courses mm -hmm. with painters, you know, because I wanted to, I, got, I wanted to get away from this, this technique, this fine line technique. It was too fastidious, you know, it was too uptight. Mm -hmm. It was too linear. And I wanted to get into more flowing, I had an artist in Mexico tell me, he said, throw away your fucking little pen, you know. <laughs> he said, you're, you're neurotic, you know, going crazy. He said, get you a paint brush and make it a foot long. <laughs> you paint like that. Did you try that? Yeah, it's, not, it's very hard. <laughs> it's very hard, it didn't work, but, but it, it was true. Started doing that, and so in the painting, I started doing that. But painting was mostly for your own. Yeah, it's for my own. But I, I've sold a lot. I've sold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've sold. I've sold big ones, you know. And uh, but you know what's funny? I, I did a lot of pretty good tango pictures, and but the tango community was dead. They had no appreciation of what, what was going on. They never did. Couldn't sell them. They never respond. They never responded to the art. Never. Nobody said maybe you, but nobody else there. So mm. it was a real disappointment because I was really in love with tango mm -hmm. and the whole romanticism of that. Do you still dance tango? I do, but I have a partner that's not, she's not as into it as much as I am. Women have a hard time with the tango. More sure than the men, because the men in the Austin tango community are nerds. That's true. And they're Having social. tango, I know that. They're social eunuchs. They have no social grace, and they only want to dance with the young girls. And mm -hmm. so the women don't get to dance. If I dance with anybody else, they get upset because I'm not dancing with them all the time. So tricky. 
tricky business. It is tricky business. <laughs> but the tango is a big deal. So I do other dances now. But the, the dancing is, I told my students, okay, now you get ready to graduate and now you got your, your degree, go take some dance lessons. Learn how to dance. Means that'll make you a better human being. It'll, it'll teach you boys how to get along with the women and the women will find the rhythm. Women are good at rhythm. They'll, they're mm -hmm. good at that. They, women love that. Go dance. Good advice. Yeah. Nobody took it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe eventually they did down the road. When they you know who over. did? Terry, Terry Ortiz. You know Terry? Structural engineer? Oh, yes. He's a tango dancer. He's very good, isn't he? I've heard about him. I, I haven't seen him do tango. When I saw him, he was still a beginner, so he wasn't real. Oh, okay. He was in the shadows for five years. He wouldn't come out of the practice room for five years. He wouldn't go to the milonga because he, he wasn't confident, but now he does. Good. Yeah. I'm curious about, you know, you had all those early travels when you were in the military. I'm wondering if the things you saw during that time influenced your design work or your... Changed my life. Yeah. The Tell big, me about that. The biggest transformation, when I was a young man, I was a skinny little kid, and I was bullied all my life. From the time I was in grade school all the way through high school, I was bullied. I can't remember how many times I was bullied in my neighborhood, in my high school, because mm -hmm. I was just a skinny little kid. When I got overseas, first thing I did, I went and signed up for judo. And then somebody told me, said, you need to sign up for karate instead of, well, what is karate? Karate was not, not very well known then. So then I changed from judo to karate. My motivation was to come back and beat up all the bullies that had bullied me in my life. <laughs> But believe it, I went from a from a 90-pound weakling to a Superman. Within a period of two years, Tony, to this day, men will not confront me. I don't know what it is, but they know that if they come up against me, they they were going to go into something. You know, that's not in their best benefit. And it has to do with the energy that you extend or the confidence. But from that point on. A bully never came close to me again. So then I started chasing. Then I became a bully. I became a bully against bullies. And when I went into country western dancing, that, that's what I would do. I go into these country western halls looking for confrontations because I knew I could take them. So in my travels in Japan, Okinawa, the martial arts became real important. Not only because they changed me physically and mentally, but because the Japanese mentors took me aside and said, look, this is what you're doing wrong, George. You, you can't be doing this. This is what you got to do. Stop doing this. Do this. Do that. Do that. And they were ruthless about it. About leading a better life. and To be a better person. person. When, I, when I stopped doing karate because I blew my elbow down, I, took in, I went into Aikido. I did Aikido for 10 years. I became better at Aikido than I was in karate. And in karate, I had one of the best teachers in the world. 
you know, mm -hmm. Toy Sensei out of Chicago. He was one of 12 Shihans in the, in the world. Toy Sensei, he broke me and, and remade me. What about just design-wise, though? Were there ever things that you saw when you were traveling that you incorporated into your architecture? At that time, I was a stupid young man. I was just real young. It didn't. It didn't. I knew it was going to be an architect, mm -hmm. but I, I, I had no eye for that. Yeah, I didn't. I was, I was engrossed with the physical physicality mm -hmm. of the martial arts, and uh, and uh, I know, and I. I missed out on a, a lot of the Japanese aesthetics, mm -hmm. but later on I learned to appreciate that. By going back, I knew that I could relate to that somehow. So the Japanese aesthetic was real good. I think my professors were more important than that. Influencing. I think uh, Alexander was real influential in my appreciation of the arts. Mm -hmm. I was never very close to Alexander because you know he he was different. And, but his intellect and his teaching methodology was very influential on me. Mm -hmm. it, I, I was real good. I was real good in my, in my history classes. And in uh, one class that I took with Kermacy in, in uh, medieval, I think it was medieval. Uh, yeah, he focused more on medieval. Yeah. And so all that, you know, the Renaissance, the medieval, all, Architectural history, I was, I was a real good like student that. on that. Yeah, I love that. And today, still pursue it, because I, I, I still realize that I don't know that much about it, but I still push it, yeah. Okay. So, the travels, because of my youth, I think that's what, if I hadn't gotten married, I would have done the grand tour. I would, that would have been much better. Mm -hmm. It would have been a better lesson than marriage. But, should have followed Swallow's advice. <laughs> Swallow was really good. Swallow was an important person in my life. I was really appreciative that he came into my fear influence. Mm -hmm. you know, he He's was, a good person. He was a good man. From every, from the very first design I took in Design One, he and him and Mather were my designers, my teachers in Design One and 101. Do you have a favorite space or a favorite building? In Austin? First in Austin, yeah. Yeah, I think the, the building that Tommy Historic did, the Palmer Center, mm -hmm. I love that building. I, I, Inside is a little different, but the, uh, the way the concept of the building is, I think, is brilliant. I think it is really very cool. And there's no other building like that in Austin. It really, the, the roof line, the, the, you know, the, the relationship of the indoor, the outside, and, the in, mm -hmm. and, and how it's sited. I, I think it was, it was very well done. I think the design that Tommy did for the School for the Deaf Mm -hmm. The whole complex is very well done, very yeah. good, very consistent, you know, without being too uh, assuming or too ostentatious, but it's still very solid. It's very good architecture. I, I like that because it's very regional and it relates to the spirit of that school. Mm -hmm. And so 
And I told Tommy several times, I said, Tommy, that's a, that's a brilliant job. You guys did a good job. Tommy was, Tommy had been one of my students. And Mr. Divigno was my office mate. And one day, Mr. Divigno, Divigno said to me, he said, George, I'm going to ask you a favor. He said, I, I know that you're full up on your students and you can't take any more students. He said, but I want you to take on one more. I said, Professor, I can't. The, the dean won't let me. He said, yeah, he'll let you. All you got to do is sign this, this form. <laughs> Other form. Yeah, and he'll let you. And I said, ah, who is this? He said, Tommy. He said, Tommy is lacking in confidence. He's very good, George. He's very brilliant. He, he needs somebody like you to bring him up and get him out of his, he's in a rut. He said, you can do it, George. Why don't you take him on? I said, yes, sir, I'll do it because you're asking me to do it. So I took him on and he was good. He, he took my course twice. And then he went to Corpus. He graduated went to Corpus. And then he wrote me a letter and said, I, I want to come to Austin. Can you give me a job? I said, you bet. So I gave him a job. And he came to work for us. He worked for us for about a year. And then he went to work for... Jay Barnes. For Barnes. Mm -hmm. if, I had any, if I had any foresight, I would have dumped Juan and taken on Tommy as a partner. He would have been really, that would have been a great partnership. Mm -hmm. He was good. So that building that he did, that Palmer Center, Tony, that's a good building. I like it. I like it too. Not just because it's a city building, but. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> it's it, good. I think that that concept is really good. Some of the St. Edward's buildings, the one that, I don't know who did it, is, I think it's very interesting. The newer one is in the backside. Mm -hmm. I think it's a South American architect. I know that Juan Cotera was uh, the associate architect. I think one of the worst buildings that they've done is the, the city hall. You don't like city hall? I don't like the exterior. It doesn't seem relevant. It's too schizophrenic, you know, it's too pushy. Pointy. Got that point yeah, it doesn't thing. have any rhythm. It doesn't have any scale. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have good proportion. It just it's aggressive and it's but it's it's chaotic. And it doesn't relate to the front, to the waterfront. You know, I could have mm -hmm. done it. Although I don't know how they could have done that, but I think Sinclair had a better solution in one of his earlier studies. Sinclair was good. He's very good. But yes. you know, but he's treacherous. Well, he's designed so many things that oh, have been built. A lot, many things that have never been built. The only one that's better than him in design is Milosov. Oh. Milosov is really good. But he's really expensive. He doesn't work in Austin. Does he? No, he does. He does a lot of rich clients, right. you know, out in the golf. And mm -hmm. Although his designs nowadays are real gingerbready, too much, too much glittery on him. Mm -hmm. I have lunch with Milosav every now and then. He's a good friend. He and I get along real well. Mm -hmm. He's brilliant. Milosav is really good. Well, I'm looking through my questions here. I see that we are past an hour. Um, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you would like to add or talk about? 
think in retrospect, you know, I feel really fortunate that I was, I guess you could say blessed that I was, did I turn out to be an architect? Because mm -hmm. I think being an architect is really special. The idea of, of being in charge of a building process is a very powerful feeling. That's the best part of the profession is going out and watching the thing go up, you know, and, and do this and do that. And wow, and then see, nah, that doesn't work, this works. Do this, and wow, that didn't work. What, what was I thinking? Why did I do that, you know? Oh, look at this, that worked out really good, and so forth and so on. That, that is a really beautiful experience, and I feel real blessed that I was fortunate to, to experience that. Mm -hmm. The biggest disappointment is, is not finding clients that understood what you were trying to do. Some of my best designs were never executed because people didn't understand them. And Tell me uh, about, well, name one of those projects that you worked well, on that didn't get done. I had a real interesting project in, in Panama, you know, doing mm -hmm. kind of a resort area with houses and a lot of auxiliary buildings and all that, and it came up with some real nice concepts. Who never took yeah. off. The the housing bubble collapsed and it triggered mm -hmm. global where Chinese investors got scared so it disappeared. disappeared. And then several years ago I did a I developed a clientele of uh, evangelical preachers, Hispanic evangelical preachers. Which is kind of ironic because I'm a disbeliever, you know. I'm not. I don't believe in in a supernatural entity. I don't believe in in a god or anything like that. Because of Cliff, I become a serious student of Buddhism because Buddhism is not about gods or supernatural mm -hmm. entities. It's most about the about the mind, and I can relate to that. But professionally, I became well known among Hispanic evangelical preachers pastors, and they're all pretty much illiterate, except they're religious people. But I'm very good at religion, and in many cases I'm, I'm better versed than they are because I have a wider view. And so they're always impressed by my religious knowledge. Your grasp of their world. Right, and, but I always play up to them, you know. And I remember one time one of the clients said to me, he said, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, George. I said, why? He said, because when, you when you're talking to these ministers, he said, you talk like a preacher. You're, you could have been a great preacher. And you talk like a preacher, and you, and, you, and you don't believe in God. If they do, you didn't believe in God, they would fire your ass. I said, okay, Pete, stop it, stop it. I said, you know. He said, but you're good at that. He said, but you're a hypocrite. I said, yes, sir, I, I'm, a, I'm a professional hypocrite. You know? But it's for the good of architecture. I said, I'm teaching them how to do good architecture. These people don't understand good design. They don't understand process. They don't understand, you know, historical precedents, you know, the economic factors, social factors, you know, the psychological impact of architecture and the facilities and the maintenance. And they don't understand the whole thing. And so I come in and try to give them everything articulated in architectural terms, and I did a real 
beautiful concept for a church in Kennedy, Texas. This is five years ago, Tony. When I was being interviewed five years ago in Kennedy, Texas, there were five pastors and they took me to lunch. We were all in, in suit and tie. They took me to a barbecue place. As soon as I walked in, I said, who? This is Bubba Land. So we sat down, we sat in a booth. They never served us. They served everybody else and they never served us. We would call the waitress and we would get ignored. So after, I don't know, 20 minutes or so, I told the pastor, pastors, I said, you know, I don't think we're gonna get any respect. And he said, architect, I think you're right, but I think we better leave, so we left. They never served us five years ago in Kennedy, Texas. And I told the pastor, I said, it's unbelievable. You know, I thought we were past that era where we were having to face that kind of discrimination. I said, but it's real sobering to realize that it's not over. Mm -hmm. I said, how do you deal with that from the pulpit? I said, what do you tell your people in dealing with that kind of uh, rejection? That kind of they couldn't answer. Because they don't. They don't know. Mm -hmm. Ironically enough, this church had 32 acres on, in back of their land. 32 acres they had bought it from, from the government. Those 32 acres had been a Japanese detention camp in World War II. Oh. Yeah. The pastor said, George, can you help us do a, a feasibility study? I said, yes, sir, I'll do that. So after that rejection at that lunch, <clears throat> I said to him, I said, you know, it's interesting how cultures work. I said, when the Japanese got interned, instead of burning the place down, they said, they turned it into a productive settlement. They created organizations, they planted gardens, they planted trees, they, they did social activities. They children. Yeah, yeah. Said, they did not burn the place down. They said, if, if they had been a Hispanic settlement, they said, we would have burned the place down. I said, how do you explain that? How do, why are we so belligerent, you know, so bellicose as opposed to, say, the Oriental culture? I couldn't tell them that it was Buddhism, because I, I that was not no. my place. Mm -hmm. I couldn't preach to them, because they were the preachers. But that design, Tony, not only encompassed, they wanted to remodel a metal building and it was a temple. Not only did I remodel the temple, I remodeled the space in front of it and I remodeled all the context and I brought it into a cohesive fabric. They didn't understand it. That was very disappointing. Yeah, yeah it would be. really. I was heart, almost heartbreaking. I said, oh, man. you know, I thought I had done a really good thing for, for this organization. Mm -hmm. um, the drawings were excellent, the presentation was excellent. I did a presentation to them in Corpus Christi, you know, at a fancy hotel and board of directors. And after the presentation, they were real quiet. And I said, 
come on, Pastor. I said, I want feedback. What? I mean, you're all too quiet. You're not talking to me. I said, tell me what's going on. What are you thinking? Mm. No feedback. And they didn't do it. That, that, that's, that's hard to accept architecturally, yeah. you know? I can see that. That kind of rejection when you do a real... When you've thrown yourself into it. Yeah, and you, when you do something real creative, you know, something mm -hmm. really meaningful, you say, wow, that really works. You know, and you realize that it has taken me 40 years to come up with this kind of ability mm -hmm. to do this, right? Sure. And then... <laughs> you know, yeah. Oh, I want to go home. <laughs> okay, well, I think that will be it for today. Thank you for interviewing. The last me. thing was was the barrier that I met in affirmative action. I think that needs to be really part of the record. That we, uh, the early architects, we didn't have any support from mm -hmm. the from the from the government. Sure. I think you system. did a good job of conveying that to you today. It was hard to cover all that without getting emotional. Oh, sure. But I'm real grateful for the for the opportunity to to be interviewed by such a distinguished architect. It's very funny. It's not funny, it's <laughs> genuine. Thank you for coming in to interview you me. You bet. Thanks for inviting me. Sure. Yeah.